Welcome to The Board, a podcast series on mechanical keyboards by the Mechanical Keyboard Community. Proudly brought to you by Idea23. Awesome caps at great prices. Kibio, the place for split keyboards. And DIY keyboards. Get cracking. Today I am recording an episode which is going to be a bit of a special, I suppose. Uh, the reason why I'm running solo again tonight is because Kevin is actually in the process of relocating his uh, his accommodations, his apartment. His lease has come up with where he's staying and he's actually moving. So he's kind of busy at the moment trying to pack up uh, his life, everything that's uh, being crammed into his tiny little apartment in Southeast Asia and move into another building. So yes, that is pretty much what's been happening across the weekend for him. And we've seen in our Slack group, a picture of a lot of his possessions. So I thought that rather than talking about what may or may not have happened in the community, I'd do something a little bit different. And the context of this, of, of this episode is that I want to talk about innovation. Now, Many, many weeks ago, we had talked about a blog post by somebody, Brian, and one of the the points in that post was that keyboards has stagnated and there wasn't really much innovation that was occurring and everything was very derivative is, is essentially what he was pointing towards. And since then, there's been a lot of jokes kind of at poor Brian's expense and using, you know, the terms about innovation and the number of innovations and prototyping and things like that. But interestingly, during that time from when Brian had actually made that post, I had an opportunity to actually attend an innovation workshop. So those of you who actually follow the board podcasts, Instagram, you would have actually seen a picture of me and somebody called Dr. Linda Sands in front of the actual the business down there in Melbourne, which is called Inventium. They they operate out of a space called the Odd Odd One Out, I think is what it's called. And my workplace basically had run a competition in regards to innovation. I'd participated in it and I was one of the lucky few who actually won a trip to go to that workshop. So what I want to talk about today is some of the things that were taught during that workshop. And this is not everything that had happened in it. And obviously, I can't present in the duration of an episode a full day's worth of workshop and activity. But I want to hit on some of the the things that I felt does, I suppose, make a lot of applicability towards anything that you're doing innovation-wise. And, you know, if I can draw thoughts and conclusions about these concepts into keyboards, then obviously that would be fantastic. But please take this a little bit broader than just keyboards, because obviously innovation is something that's very important for a lot of people, you know, not just for work, but also whatever you do in general. So so there you go. Now, of course, uh, (laughs) what I'm talking through now is not particularly new to the general innovation space. A lot of research has already been out there to cover this, but a lot of the workshop was really more about bringing it together in a cohesive manner and explaining it in a lot more detail. So nothing that I'm talking about here is revolutionary in a sense, and it shouldn't be really, but it's more about just getting it 
and breaking it down into a way that's easy to understand and apply. So, first of all, we have to think about what is innovation? What is the definition of innovation? What is the purpose of innovation? If you do a search on the internet and you want to find out what innovation actually means, you will find a lot of variants, a lot of differences in how innovation is thought about, how innovation is discussed, and how innovation is defined. In the context of what we do in a day-to-day sense, the definition that I like to think about and prefer is really quite simple, and that is innovation is something that is either novel or new that creates benefit. Okay, it creates benefit. If anything you do and you develop and it's new, but it doesn't add benefit, it doesn't give you benefit, then that's novelty. That That's pretty much it. So innovation is taking something that is novel or new that has benefit, that adds benefit, that creates benefit. That benefit component is very, very important. Because if there's no benefit to it, then it's just purely novelty. Okay. Now, innovation doesn't have to be disruptive. Innovation can be small steps. Continuous improvement, for example, is an example of innovation. Little steps, little improvements, little change that bring about benefit. And what I'm talking about here, for example, is things like hot swaps. So the kale hot swap is innovative, but it's not disruptive because people had already been putting in hot swaps through things like sockets, Milmac sockets. But kale took that and made something innovative by putting two sockets into an actual housing that made it easy to put in and solder. And you didn't have to worry about putting in too much solder and filling up the Milmac socket and you didn't have to worry about counting the right number of pairs and you didn't have to worry about if the pins would fit and so on and so forth. So that, for example, is innovation right there. Is it disruptive? Semi-disruptive, not terribly, terribly disruptive. So now that we understand what innovation is, the process of innovation is quite simple. The first thing is you have to actually come up with the idea, right? Ideation is what they generally try to terminate, to, to, to call it, to define it, sorry, to name it. So ideation is about drawing ideas. It's brainstorming. It's sitting around throwing things into a, a bucket and going, you know what? That is something that we want to take forward. Now, after you ideate, right? So ideation is very wide. And, and they call this kind of like the diamond theory. So you go wide and then you bring it back in. So you ideate, you come up with all sorts of ideas and theories, what you want to do, what could be potentially an innovation, and then you bring it in. You condense it and you down select. And then as part of that process, when you down select, you end up with a focus and that focus is what you want to test. And this is what you want to prototype. This is what you want to develop and move forward. So ideation is 
really, really important because you want to grab as many potential candidates to move forward with. During the ideation phase, you really should not be not taking any ideas, no matter how ridiculous they are. You want as many ideas as possible because through the filtering process, through the down selection process, is where all the ones that aren't going to be as strong as others get tossed out. They won't make it through the filter. So, what do you do to get as many ideas as possible? Now, of course, everyone's like, yeah, let's have a brainstorming session. But if brainstorming sessions were that simple and that easy and could give you amazing ideas all the time, why do a lot of brainstorming sessions often fizzle out and don't bring a lot of value? Well, it's very hard to say, but there are a lot of factors that can attribute to good and poor, or should I say better and not as good ideation creation. So one of the things is the environment. The environment that you ideate in is very, very important. There are, there are a lot of studies out there that demonstrate environmental factors affect creativity and ideation. One of the ones that has been notable is simply being in nature. Now, this is a little bit of a weird one in the sense that by being outdoors, you are actually more naturally creative. The theory behind that is that you are more relaxed and that you are more in tune with you know, the world around you. And so you get more creative in the way that you think. You're not stressed about your environment. Now, this may not necessarily be feasible for everyone to brainstorm, to go out into the mountains and into the wilderness and sit by a stream and all that kind of thing. But studies have shown that even having pictures of the natural world makes a difference. So if you can't get out and about, simply having landscapes of nature on your desktop or pictures hanging on the walls will make a difference. Staying within that same theme about your environment, colors, warm colors also help somehow. I guess it's more of a, a bright, vivid response in your creativity. So if you sit in a gray, industrial, modernized, you know, very sort of metal colors and things like that, you are actually less likely to be at your creative potential compared to if you are ideating in an environment that is full of rich, warm colors, you know, hues like sunset orange and, and bright pinks and, you know, vivid colors like uh, fuchsia and stuff like that. So it's very interesting because a lot of these factors are subconscious. You are not necessarily aware of this, which is, is absolutely fantastic. So there are very simple things like having tablecloths in warm colors or having decorations or furnishings or even walls painted in these warm colors that can help you bring out your subconscious improved creativity. Very easy solutions that can improve your ideation. Another thing that you can play with is props. So, you know, in the last, what, two years, 
fidget spinners have come and gone. They've come, they've been a thing, and they've died away. And they were meant to be devices to help people concentrate who had concentration issues. In the same context of ideation, props are really, really important. Because by playing with props, whether it's a spinner, it's a soft toy, it's, you know, like a tennis ball, a squish toy, whatever it is, it actually lets your mind wander. It lets your mind float around and not be solely fixated on whatever it is that you're trying to develop. And you can get these really out there thoughts, out there solutions, kind of a, hey, what about this? So if you want a really great ideation session, besides the environmental effects of, you know, pictures and sounds of nature and bright colors, think about having a box of things to fidget with, to play with, to throw around the room. You know, if you've ever seen, um, what's that? A Few Good Men, right? I think that's the right one. Jack, um, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise. What's the lawyer? That scene with the, you know, you can't handle the truth, right? They're standing around in a room trying to figure out the court case and he's got a baseball bat and he's just carrying the baseball around and he's swinging it. It's because it's getting his gears going. It's getting his thoughts going. Uh, there's another movie. I can't remember what what, is, what was it, but they've got a they've got a football and they're just tossing the football back and forth between them as they're talking, right? It's that same concept. How do you get your mind ticking over subconsciously because part of your brain focus is somewhere else? And then out of left field, bam, something that you might not have thought of has just come out because your your frontal conscious thought has been distracted to allow a subconscious thought to poke through. Very simple. It's really, really, really simple. Now, if you don't think your environment can let you do that then, well, you need to have some more external focuses. You want to have some more external distractions when you come to the idea of creating ideas. You want stimuli. So a really effective way of getting stimuli is to actually expand your horizons in general interest. And and there is actually a term for this, but I don't actually remember what it was. So I do apologize for that. But essentially, the more well-read that you are in general things, the better chance you have of coming up with something different because you have all these influences coming in. And, and in this workshop, you know, one of the examples that was given to us was, well, if you have a problem and you're looking for a solution, if you read about something completely unrelated to your problem and your solution, you could draw inspiration subconsciously from something that you've read about. So magazine articles, newspaper articles, things on the internet, listening to different music, all of those kinds of things can give you a different inspiration. Now, in the workshop, we had a core problem that we were trying to solve, that we were trying to ideate for. And that was that people don't want to spend time in a shop trying on jeans. So what kind of solutions do you have that could potentially work around this problem? One of the articles as we were doing this particular you know, technique that I was given was a mobile 
innovation lab where somebody in the back of a van had 3D printers and laser cutters and stuff like that, and they would drive around to different libraries and offer kids a chance to check out 3D printing and laser cutting and stuff like that. Because obviously in a lot of places, that's not something that libraries will have resources for. And just by thinking about, well, what can you do in the back of a truck, right? Now in Brisbane, here in Australia, there's a startup which is designed to help homeless people. There's these guys who had a van and they put washing machines in the back of it. Okay, such a simple concept. Powered by a diesel generator, they could hook up a garden hose to the van or have water tanks if they've got them available to them. And they drive around and they help the homeless by giving them a chance to wash and dry their clothes. Gives them a bit of dignity as well as keeps their hygiene and their health in a better condition. Okay, so I had already known about this But when I read this Mobile Innovation Lab article, it triggered that thought. And then it led me to thinking, well, if these guys can go around with washing machines, right? And you already have like ice cream vans that go around and sell ice cream. What could you do for trying on jeans? And my idea that I came out of this as part of our discussions was, what happens if you have a mobile jeans van? You could have this van turn up to your local skate park and... They could just carry like the latest trendy jeans for skaters. And you could go and set up a little change room curtain thing on the side and people come along and try out jeans while they're at the skate park, you know, leave their ID with you or pay a deposit, whatever, go and do a bit of skating, come back and go, you know what? Sweet. I love these jeans. I know what they are. I'm going to buy a pair if they're in the van or I can order a pair and get them sent to me. Right. So now the pain and hassle of going to the shops To try on a bunch of jeans has become fun and it's come to you. And all of that just came from reading an article that was completely unrelated to trying on jeans and going to the shops. So that is an idea that you can play with about reading a lot of little things, just random articles and thinking about, okay, what is happening here and how can I potentially apply it to my problem that I'm trying to innovate and ideate a solution for. Since a lot of our listeners are on Reddit, something that I would really highly recommend, and I love going to this page myself, is the Today I Learned page, okay? Because that is almost exactly like this thought in that somebody else has read an article and they've gone, today I've learned this. There's so much stuff that I've read there that is just like it's like trivia it's like random junk sometimes but you never know when something that somebody else learnt about that you can read in either a one line or a very quick little you know f- 5 minute read really in some of these articles could sit in the back of your subconscious and give you better ideas give you better innovation for whatever problem that you're trying to tackle moving with that forwards Right. There are other things like shower thoughts um, and, you know, world news and things like that. Heaps of relatively safe subreddits that you can go to to read and pick up and broaden your general idea of the world of different things that are possible, that are happening, that other people are doing and so on and so forth. Now, moving forward into other exercises and things that you can do. So one of the things that you can do is called Think the Impossible, right? It's a very quick, short, punchy exercise where you throw out to the people that you're trying to ideate with 
something that is potentially impossible, but you let them go wild, right? The wildest dreams. So you say, by tomorrow, we're going to land on Mars. How are we going to achieve that? And of course, people can be like, well, I don't know, we'll, we'll build a teleporter or we'll land on a Mars bar because you never said it had to be Mars the planet or we'll rename the moon Mars and then send up a rocket or, you know, it's, it's all these weird, wacky, crazy things, but you put a very short time limit, two minutes, five minutes, right? And you throw out ideas and you go, I want a minimum of 10 ideas because this is where you start reaching for the crazy ones. But within the crazy ones, there's going to be a gem of potential truth. And that's something that you can work off and that's sparking your creativity because then you can start reeling it back in with limiters, with, you know, reality, I guess, which leads to the next exercise that you can run when you do this, which is assumption crushing. I really like this one. I love assumption crushers because assumptions are that it's something that people think could be a potential blocker. And quite often, for example, money is an assumption. Uh, that's going to be too expensive. We're not going to be able to afford to do that. Therefore, I'm not going to pitch this idea because I don't think it's ever going to get off the ground. Now, if you could crush that assumption, you take that, we're not going to be able to get money for it. And you just scrunch it up in a bowl as flat and small as possible. And you just chuck it in the bin. Like to crush that motorbike. Then you open the world of possibilities and then you can start working reality back into it. So many years ago, I had done a different course, a reliability engineering course, and they talked about, well, let's say that money was not an object. How would you build a system that could provide the most reliable system for this particular thing? And my solution was a miniaturized nuclear powered support vehicle and it meant that you could always have power you could always have air conditioning you could always you know be able to have communications and this that and the other and people laughed at the idea and they were like well that's crazy and because you can't do that and i said why not because the assumption was if money was not a limit we can already build this technology we already have the capability it's just too expensive. But once you throw that away, it brings back the idea of, well, it's actually achievable. It's just a financial aspect. So if we're limited by finances, what parts of this could we actually afford and implement and what parts of this solution that we would potentially take away? Of course, the nuclear part is the most expensive part. So you take that nuclear reactor away. So then, well, you could still provide the vibration protection, you can still provide the air conditioning, you just have to think about how are you going to power it. So assumption crushing is really, really good. You tell people, here it is, this assumption, don't worry about it. That assumption, don't worry about it, right? Give me your ideas as if they're not a problem. And that will help with people throwing more ideas in. The next exercise that you can run is stepping in somebody's shoes, taking a perspective, taking a persona. And this one was actually a lot of fun because it was all about having a theme driven 
as if you were somebody or something. And so they had a whole list of celebrities and fictional characters. For example, they had Ronald McDonald and they had James Bond. But then at the same time, they had Gandhi and they had Obama and they had um, the Colonel from Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders and things like that. And they said, well, if you step into their shoes and you behave as the way that they and their persona is perceived, how would they potentially attack this problem? Now, for me, I took Obama because I thought that would be fun because the whole thing with Obama and his campaign was, yes, we can, right? That catchphrase, yes, we can, is really powerful. So if a customer goes, well, I don't want to have to go to the store to get fitted for jeans, but I want to be able to be at my home, then the catchphrase, yes, we can, means the solution is we will stop at nothing to be able to supply that. And that changes your perspective very differently, right? Now, somebody took James Bond, okay? And it was actually really interesting because it's something that you'd never really thought about. James Bond, no matter who James Bond is, it's always James Bond. It doesn't matter who plays James Bond, it's always that same universal persona, right? Cool, calm, collected, well-dressed, well-spoken, you know, um, a martini, shaken, not stirred, right? So their solution was, well, customers don't have to come and get fitted for jeans because all jeans will be now manufactured exactly the same. And customers don't have to get measured and fitted because they only have one choice of jeans. They have to exercise their butts off so that they can fit into jeans. So worldwide, you would basically go, all jeans are now standardized to this. And if you want to wear jeans, well, you need to fit the jeans, not the jeans fit you. Now, how crazy is that idea? But at the same time, it's a legitimate solution. It's a legitimate solution. Is it a very good legitimate solution? Probably not. <laughs> but this is, an, this is ideation. This is creating all the ideas. This is creating all the weird and wacky ideas out there. And then later on, you're going to pick them apart and find the ones that work, find the ones that don't. Now, this is where I want to move forward into the next stage, which is the whole point about down selection. Now that you've gathered a lot of ideas, tens of ideas, hundreds of ideas, potentially thousands of ideas, you need to be able to figure out the shortlist, the shortlist of ideas that you're going to take forward and actually invest time, effort, money into developing. And this is really hard. Now, there's obviously ones that are just way out there, right? And you could potentially very quickly just toss them. But you still need to explore them and you can't explore them alone. Ideation and down selection should always be done with other people. If you're the only one coming up with the ideas, you're the one that also carries the same background knowledge and assumptions, which plays a very big bias, unconscious bias, to what would or would not be a good workable idea. So you have to involve other people. And this is basically 
using outsiders. So if you have a team of people and they come up with a whole bunch of ideas, they can put in their input, and I'll get to that point later, on what ideas they think should be shortlisted, but you really should bring in outsiders to do the selection process as well. Because they're the ones that are going to query, they might not know the background, but they're going to be the ones who are going to be like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Oh, maybe that will really work. Because they don't have the same background knowledge and experience necessarily as the people who came up with the ideas. And then you're going to have a very different shortlist that you need to consider simply because it's almost like an unconscious assumption crushing because the people who selected them had no idea about it at all. But when you come to actually doing this down selection, there are a variety of things to consider. There are a variety of techniques that you can utilize that will ensure you get a good down select. And the first thing is selection should always be anonymous. People judge. People judge really, really hardly. And there's always the perception of judgment, even if judgment is not being directly applied. Now, what I mean by this is if you have a whole bunch of ideas and they're all laid out on the wall or on a whiteboard, on the floor, in a spreadsheet or whatever it is, and you want people to vote on what they thought were the best ideas, if somebody really likes a crazy, wacky idea, they are less likely to actually put their name against it if they think other people will think less of them for selecting that idea. And everyone, even though in a hive mind, group kind of scenario, group mentality, there is still the unconscious individual that is going to be there. So what that means is the best way to actually select is going to be anonymous selection. So they can't be judged by other people and they can freely choose the ideas that they think individually are the best. And then, of course, you would collate them together and work out the count. At the same time, though, prior to doing your selection, there are other things that you have to think about. If you're having discussions before you down select, you need to mediate your discussions. Because the moment that somebody says, how about this idea? And I think this idea is better than that idea. It goes into your subconscious. It is actually really, really hard to get rid of the fact that you've heard somebody say, I think this idea is better than that one. Because part of your brain will already start processing that and going, oh, yeah, that's probably true. And until something comes along to disprove that, your brain takes it for face value. So before you actually do your down select, you have to play it very carefully to prevent these kinds of unconscious bias from happening. When you have your discussions, when you have your ideations, right, and this shortlist is being formed and coming together from your large list, you need to ensure that everybody is not going to be biased by things like managers and extroverts. So if a manager comes in and goes, you know what, I think they're the best ideas, that, that, and that, everybody unconsciously is going to select those ideas because they don't want the boss to be upset. Studies have demonstrated this is actually true. 
Of course, you're going to have people who feel very strongly and they're not going to vote for those ideas because they believe other ideas are true. But there is a sheep-like behavior that can occur because the boss said these ones are the best. And that may also be because a lot of people might feel that they're less experienced, that they're less knowledgeable, and therefore they must be missing something. And if the boss said that these ones are the best ones, then they must be the best ones. And so you inadvertently skew your selection of the best ideas. So ideas should be discussed in a particular way that you won't have these biases. So we already talked about managers, and now I'm going to talk about extroverts. The reason why extroverts versus introverts is really important is because who are the people that are most vocal? Extroverts. So they're the ones that are going to be talking over other people. They're the ones that are going to be saying, well, I think this is the best one, and your idea sucks. The moment that happens, somebody who's introverted who might be like, well, that idea is actually better than that, they're not going to speak up because they don't want to be talked over. And they don't want to be putting themselves out there to be shot down before something is actually even selected. So being able to manage how the, uh, these ideas are presented and how these ideas are discussed before you have your selection process is really, really important. I don't have good solutions for that. And quite often you can't prevent that because people naturally discuss them while they're coming up with the ideas before you even get to the shortlist part. And so sometimes you might have to ideate in silence and ideate anonymously. So everyone comes up with their ideas, but rather than shouting out there and presenting them, they write them down. They put them down on sheets of paper or whatever. They send them in, they get collated, and therefore no one is named and no one is going to feel bad if their ideas get talked about and shot down. At the same time, it makes easy selection because you can silently, quietly, you know, be able to anonymously down-select ideas after somebody, for example, a mediator of this ideation, can talk through and explain what the idea is about. So it's really important that that process be as unbiased as possible to give the good ideas a chance. moving forwards from that, you then, of course, start to think about why should we go forward with any of these down-selected ideas? So you might have started with 100 ideas and you've down-selected it to 10, right? Now you've got 10 ideas that you want to explore a little bit further because they've gone through the rigors of having good creativity in them. They've gone through a bit of assumption crushing and they've been remolded a little bit. And there's no problems with going back and forth from lots of ideas to few ideas, taking those few ideas and expanding them by re-ideating, you know, more refined ideas out of broad ideas, and then down-selecting those refined ideas into a smaller list again. But now you need to really think about how do I distinguish ideas from each other and what other ones of value to carry forwards. There's a technique which this particular group calls Pi name. This is even on one of their blog pages, so you know I don't feel like it's really an issue. But the acronym Pi name is problem, idea, execution, novelty, appeal, money, and evidence. They're not actually in a 
specific particular order, at least the second half isn't, but it is a way of developing the scale of your solution so you can compare them against other solutions and then pitch them. You can pitch them to yourselves, you can pitch them to the team, you can pitch it to managers. And it's something that can be done in like a a shark tank type of environment. So going from the top, pi name, problem. What is the problem that you're trying to have a novel approach that will give you benefit? Doesn't matter the big or small scale of it, right? Define the problem, keep it succinct. It has to be clear so that someone can understand straight away, that is what I'm trying to solve. Pi name I for idea. Describe the idea. Describe the solution that you've got, right? Describe that ideation that you've come down to and distilled. If it's something that you can't articulate well in short, sharp points, then you need to go back to the drawing board. E, execution. Execution is more about a step-by-step potential. How are you going to make this idea happen? Okay. What is required to make this idea successful? They might not be things that are actually known. So you could say, well, we need to achieve this, but we currently don't know how. Because you've got to remember, ideas, if they're big ideas, if they're improvement ideas, if they're novel ideas you won't necessarily have an answer to all of those steps. And that's part of the innovation cycle. So you need to be able to outline, and that's why it's outline, what is the actual execution steps. So the N in Pi name is novelty. Well, you have to describe why your idea and or execution is actually novel. Why is it different? How is it different to what is currently already being done or out there to a similar solution? There's no value in in expending money and time and effort and prototyping if your solution isn't actually new. It's the definition of insanity to do the same thing over and over, but expect a different result. A. Appeal. Now, this one's a really interesting one because you have to think about what your audience is. Who are the people that will be getting the benefit? Who are the people, the end users, that will be receiving the most from your innovation? What is the appeal? What is the appeal? M for money. Well, this one's really interesting because... A lot of people might say, well, innovation should not have money involved in it, right? For innovation's sake. But at the same time, money is in everything that a lot of businesses will do. And you can't get away from that. And even if you crush an assumption that money is no object, at the end of the day, money is required. So M, money, requires you to basically outline why and how you think that this innovation is either going to save you money, make you money, or even how your money will be used differently. 
And this is really important because if you don't talk about money and the impact of your idea on money, it will always sit there with other people in the back of their minds and be a blocker. Because it's going to be something that's going to be ticking away going, can we afford this? Or is this going to help our bottom line? Or what's the, what's the value of doing all this extra work if our financial position doesn't change? So if you can alleviate that as part of the pie name process, then there will be less focused on that as an issue and being able to focus on the actual innovation itself. And lastly, the second E in pie name is evidence. So the evidence part is, are you able to provide evidence that something else, potentially similar but not the same, is already working and kind of successful to help your idea be a bit of a stretch and work? Evidence is talking about potential for the idea to be effective. It's not that this idea will absolutely work. You can't do that. You can't You can't get that proof because if you've got that proof, then your idea is no longer novel because somebody else is already doing it. Now, this is an example of um, how evidence works, say, in the context of a smartphone. So if you're trying to come up with a touch screen phone, you could be like, well, we already know that people like to press buttons and button dialing is a thing, right? Buttons on the old mobile phones work. People press the button and they've got a mobile phone, they can make a call. But what happens if we take away the physical button, but we put a screen that we can press the numbers on instead? Right, so this is a bit of a big picture kind of thing. The evidence is people already use mobile phones. They're successful. People already press buttons and that's successful. It's a tried and true method of data input. The innovation is that we're taking away the physical buttons and using a touch screen. That's the innovation, right, in this example. Is it likely to work? Yeah, it's actually quite likely to work because people are already used to pressing buttons, buttons that might not move very much. So tapping a screen is not that far-fetched, but is evidence that it probably is going to work. And that's an idea, right? That's an example of evidence. So if you can take this and take your idea and pitch it through pie name, then that would potentially be able to pitch your idea to somebody who is involved in decision making to be able to go, yep, let's run with idea. Let's run with this because it will give us all of these benefits. So do we have a real world example, maybe related to keyboards that we can utilize? Well, I'll, I'll try. And, and this was something that I was really thinking about lately, which was the problem is Keyboards, modern keyboards, are not ergonomic. Okay, modern computer keyboards are not ergonomic because they're designed off typewriters, which was a mechanical issue, and you wanted to prevent keys from jamming. So the stagger. Now, my idea here, running through PyName, so the problem is not ergonomic. The idea is 
a split keyboard that gives you the right angles for your wrists. Because it'll save you having to have your hands into an unnatural position. The execution is we would need to design a new keyboard layout and PCB that would allow you to have a split keyboard and it would still be able to function as per normal and plug in. What is so new and innovative about this? Well, there were no split keyboards. There were no ergonomic keyboards that separated the hands to the right angle. What is the appeal? Well, the appeal of this to the end user is that a more comfortable typing experience. They'll be able to type for longer and it will give you less injuries, less strain on your wrists and your hands and your arms when you type. And therefore you can be more productive. Money. What is the financial impact of this innovation? Well, it might cost you more money to replace everyone's keyboards with a split keyboard, but you will gain productivity because people can type longer and faster without injuring themselves, so they can get more work done. And at the same time, by not injuring themselves, it means they spend less time having to get treatment for RSI, having days off, medical expenses, insurance for the business, and so on and so forth. And evidence. Well, that one's a tricky one, but we already know that people can type on keyboards, right? So keyboards is a thing. And we know that people can type one-handed if they tilt their keyboards at particular angles, right? We know that other ergonomic devices might exist and are successful, and we know that humans are flexible enough to be able to learn something different. For example, they can play musical keyboards, right? And their hands are already widespread apart and they can move up and down, left and right and stuff like that. So we have the capability and the coordination to be able to, and the inclination, to be able to move our hands in different ways and different positions and still be able to put input into a pressing device. So it's not that far of a stretch that you could take a keyboard, separate it, angle it, and then people can still learn to be able to type. And that would be a pitch, right? So if the split keyboard or an ergonomic keyboard had never existed before and you were like going and talking to, say, you know, Bill Gates for the first ever Microsoft ergonomic keyboard, you would list all of that. Here's the problem, non-ergonomic keyboards. Here's the idea, let's split it. We only need to make a new PCB and a new plastic molded case. It's innovative because nobody else is doing it and it would help us capture more market share and make people more effective and work better and be more productive. The money is going to save people and will make money because people will have to buy new keyboards to replace it. And the evidence is that, well, we can already do it. Humans are very adaptable. Bam, right? There's your sales pitch. Would it work? Maybe. But I mean, I've just come up with that you know, in, in two minutes, right? Three minutes, however long it was that I rabbited on about so, so the process isn't really that hard to run something through PyName. And you can be as detailed as you want, or you can be as light and succinct to the point as you want, as long as you hit every one of those areas in a satisfactory manner. 
And if any of those are a bit on the weak side, then that's where you have to go back and think, well, is this actually a good idea? Now, once you run all of your ideas that you've shortlisted through the Pinem process, your weak ones will show up. Because if something doesn't really have great appeal, well, okay, that's going to go down compared to ones that have really great appeal. If something doesn't really have evidence to say that it's probably going to be successful, that'll go down compared to the ones that have evidence that there's probably going to be success. If this one doesn't have as much financial benefit compared to that one, well, then they're going to change positions so that the ones with financial benefit are going to be higher up the chain. And that will allow you to down select yet again to the ones that you do want to pick up and go forward and run with and try. So it's, it is a long drawn process. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't, but good innovation follows a path. And that path is going to go all over the place, but it comes back to an idea that actually is worthwhile pursuing. And we have to remember through all of this, the whole point of innovation is to be able to bring something new, novel, right? Something different that provides benefit to the end user, right? To the product, to the end user of the product, to the end user of the process, no matter what it is. The definition is broad enough that you can, you can put that in. Okay. So, just to recap on sort of the last almost 50 minutes, really, of talking about all of this, you want to ideate in an environment that supports good creativity. Go outside, go for a walk, put up pictures of nature, have bright colors, warm colors in the room, put stimuli that help people think differently and be slightly distracted. You want to improve ideation by having extra stimuli and external sources sitting around in your subconscious. Get your people to read more widely. Get them to interact with different fields of their knowledge and expertise that is outside of their normal day-to-day, because that will help them throw these ideas and bounce them around. And when you're actually coming up with ideas, let them think of the impossible. Come up with the weird, the wacky, the that's never going to happen, because that gets that creativity open that starts to throw assumptions out the window. Do that assumption crushing, right? Take those assumptions, the big common assumptions that people go, oh, well, that's never going to work because, and crush it and get the ideas because you can always work on the issues that they have those assumptions about. Get them to think in somebody else's shoes. Take other people's perspectives sit in the customer's shoe and go, well, this is what I actually want. Would I be happy with that being a solution, right? When you come to actually down selecting your ideas, make sure you're trying to remove as much bias as possible. Don't let people feel that their ideas are less valued than others. Don't let people who are in positions of power and control give their preference as that will cause others to follow like sheep unconsciously, right? Do allow people to present all of their ideas as evenly as possible and anonymously even, and have your selection process anonymous so that they aren't going to be influenced by others. And then, of course, be able to assess 
be able to assess your ideas in an objective fashion through the use of something like PyName, where you can hit all of the points about why is this a good solution to go forwards with. Now, if I bring this back and reel it all back in to my own personal project, which I've talked about for the last several weeks, the down bubble, right? The problem is there is no full-sized ergonomic keyboard that is a custom keyboard. There is also no keyboard that reduces the amount of travel required in a full-sized that includes a numpad for right-handers. Now, that's a very specific problem, but that's the problem that I was pitching my thoughts at when I came up with the down bubble. The idea, the idea was, let's have a split keyboard and put the numpad in the middle and rotate the whole lot. Well, the execution was, we need to create a new layout, a new PCB, a new case, and then just run with it. Why is this novel? Well, nobody else has done this before, that they may have put numpads in the middle or other things in the middle, but they had never rotated them as well to a completely different angle. And nobody's really done this for a full-size keyboard. Well, what's the appeal? Well, the appeal is that it is more ergonomic, right? The movement of your right hand to mouse is now reduced, but the movement of your right hand to the numpad is also reduced because you're no longer traveling over the top of the navigation arrow cluster to get to your numpad. It's just that you're changing the direction of where your hand is moving, left or the right. And having the rotation of the numpad means the rotation of your arm and your hand to use the numpad in the middle is actually more ergonomic. Money. Well, this one's a bit of a hard one for me, but the benefit is you're less likely to have injury and you can be potentially faster because you're spending, you know, fractions of seconds here in moving and crossing distances. Sure, that one's a bit of a weak one, but I didn't go into this originally thinking about financial aspects here, but the productivity could definitely be increased by having this. And the evidence, well, what's the evidence that something like this might be successful? Well, we already have split keyboards. We already have keyboards that are rotated and angled in weird ways. And there's evidence that people still need numpads as well because people have separated numpads to go with their 60% keyboards. So there's definitely a use case there for being able to have that full array of keys as well as split keyboards, as well as angled keyboards. So putting all of that together gives me some confidence that I think my idea would work. And of course, I've played tested that, I've done that with a prototype, been happy enough to go to a PCB, been happy enough to go and get an aluminum case prototype as well. So that is an idea that has run through this whole gambit very quickly in a couple of minutes, and it holds up water in most spaces except for the money part, because I can't really evidence that. Now, I don't know how applicable this is going to be to everybody out there, but if you've never had a lot of thoughts and learning and training and, and workshops about innovation, I hope this has been really useful for you. Because if your workplace 
wants to improve and grow and develop and get ahead of their competition, I guarantee you 2019's buzzword is innovation. Everywhere you go, people are talking about innovation and continuous improvement and, you know, Lean Six projects and things like that, right? If you want to get involved with that and help your business or the company that you work for or your personal private projects, no matter what they are, keyboards or other, these tools can help yourself and it can help your work develop better. Go for a walk in the local park when you want to think about a problem and come up with a solution. Or have some landscape or have natural sounds or have really bright warm colors on the table or wear them, right? Or play with a fidget toy while you're thinking about these issues when you're in the shower and things like that, right? That distraction piece. Pitch your ideas with other people and think about the crazy stuff and then bring it back to reality. Put all your ideas together and let other people pick them apart and choose the ones that they think would work, right? So all of these techniques will be able to help you gain some sense of better innovation. Of course, that's if you're interested in that. So, yeah, I felt it was a really great workshop. I felt it was really powerful. And obviously, it's already been a couple of weeks now. And all these points are still here. All these points are still sticking in my mind because of how powerful and how simple these things are but the impact that they have on being able to put forward a great idea, okay? So I hope that's been really interesting for you all. And if you'd like to hear more about these kinds of things and and the weird and wacky stuff that I end up learning and developing and getting trained on and worked on, please let us know. Please let me know because I'm always more than happy to share these kinds of things within the community. And I do realize that it's probably not very keyboard related this week, (laughs) but I've tried to keep that tie in there. So if you're developing a new switch, if you're developing a new layout, if you're developing a new keyboard, think about what it is that you're actually doing. Is it purely just novelty or is there actually an innovation behind it? There's nothing wrong with novelty, especially in a hobby, but if you want to be hitting that innovation mark, then these are just some of the things that can help you identify that innovation. Well, there you have it. Now, I do realize I didn't talk about competitions this week for the month of March. We are actually already uh, a good way into March now. It's the uh, 9th of March now. We're, We're a third of the way in, I guess. I know that Kibio will, of course, still be supplying us something this month from their catalog. I just haven't determined yet if there's anything from our other sponsors available this month but hopefully um, if they listen to this they might get back to me because I don't really feel like poking them and going hey what are you what are you offering because <laughs> I'm kind of not that that way inclined and I don't mind of course giving out community shout outs regardless for for people that we should be supporting locally all over the world anyway so if you are somebody who does want a shout out Whatever it is that you're working on project-wise, key set, you're launching a new store, group buy, etc., etc., just let us know. You can send us an email to theboardpodcast at gmail.com and be more than happy to have that shouted out for you or talked about on our next episode as well. Now, don't forget, if you would like an invitation to our Slack 
please send me an email to that same email address, which is theboardpodcast at gmail.com so that I can send you a, uh, a link, basically, so you can come along and hang out with us on Slack. And if you'd like to support us in every other way, we've got our YouTube channel, Instagram, you can find us on Reddit, you can find us on Facebook, you can support us as well on Patreon. There you go. There you have it. I don't know when Kevin's going to be back because obviously once he moves into his new place, he's going to still have to unpack while handling the crazy life that is of being a working person. (laughs) Hopefully he won't have a lot of travel coming up as well. That's going to throw a bit of a spanner in the works, but we'll get by and, and we'll have him on, of course, when he's next available to do so. So thanks very much for tuning in. Love and appreciate everyone's support, continuing support, of course, for us here at the board. And, of course, as usual. Until next time, happy clacking.